Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Waste Basket Podcast Deep Dive Series. Say hi to the people, Jordan. Hi to the people. Jordan. What are we talking about today? We are talking about JC Chandor's Martian Call. Chris, introduce yourself. What's your name? Who are you? I'm Chris. Hi, Chris. We're, we've already established that, haven't we? I don't know. Have we? I mean, I think there's been... So I, I did a letterbox, as you know. Folks can go check out the letterbox list for the wastebaskets. And we have covered 45 films already in this pod. Wow. Yeah. But there haven't been 45 episodes. No. Remember, we did have those really fun episodes where we covered like three at a time. Oh, okay. And there'll be... There'll be one coming up where we cover eight, so that'll be uh, even more exciting. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I look forward to adding those. Uh, as uh, Chris is alluding to, we are going to have an After Dark episode where we cover the Oscars, so look forward to that. In the meantime, we are starting our deep dive series on the director, J.C. Chandor, and today's movie is Margin Call, which came out in from 2011. Thank you. 2011 um i'm going to do a brief synopsis like we did for the connery series hopefully you listen to that so jc chandor is currently 47 years old uh he directed this movie about 10 years ago when he was 37 so uh kind of young kind of or i guess middle-aged right chris like us would you say bright-eyed and bushy-tailed you would want me to say that because we are that age and we mm. are not as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Just just entering the prime of his life. Yes, yes. Uh, but he wasn't an overnight success. As they say, overnight success takes 10 years. He actually has spent 15 <laughs> years in uh, the uh, entertainment industry doing commercial and documentary directing. Uh, at the time that he wrote this, uh, he says in a few interviews that he had been mulling over that idea for a few years, then wrote it in a rush in four days as he was also applying to jobs in a completely different field. So it sounds like he was kind of in a transitional period, like some of us may be, uh, my, myself. And since we don't know which field we don't. he was planning on moving into, you, we're just going to assume it was zookeeping. Porn star? Zookeeping. Oh, okay. Though he does have great hair. I need to look up a picture of him. I just uh, just seen his name written down. Am so. I the only one doing research, Chris? That is correct. I have done zero work for this movie. You didn't even watch a red letter yeah, media. Yeah, he does have good hair. You didn't even watch a red letter media for this movie. They, they haven't done one, as far as I know. I'll have to. I'll go onto their Patreon and request it. Okay. Like, hey, well, I, I thought that you were catch up. I thought you were writing the. Um, official uh, history of Red Letter Media. It's, yeah, it's more of a Bible. More of a Bible. Gotcha, gotcha. And yeah. for our yeah. fans, never watch that YouTube show. Stick with us. Anyway. <laughs> Anywho's. Anywho's. Chris, that's, yeah. that's called a callback so. because we're re recording. I'm going to cut this. You're just supposed you don't to have to you're, keep it all no, in. You're just supposed to say, you're just supposed to say the same jokes because we're re-recording. Uh, oh my so God. hard, man. I'm just, uh, I'm just like, I, I'm too freewheeling here. God. Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, oh freewheeling. God. 
prime of my life, 37 years old, vaccinated partially. Everything's everything's looking up. Half vexed. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. So, all right. Let me let me jump let me jump in here a little bit. Jump. So as high as a Jalen Suggs. Suggs. What's that? Gonzaga guys. Suggs. 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 S U G G S. Jump as high as a a jump shot at the last second. What a what a game! What a game! Um. Anyway, so 2011, we're in the sort of what would you call it? like doldrums, Malays. We're in the doldrums, but it's still we're really feeling the effects from the beginning of the Great Recession. Well, and uh, the beginning was 2008. That's why I said doldrums because it's still the hangover. The oh well, I mean, unemployment was still ridiculously yeah, high. Yeah, it was and, still not a great time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, some would say we're not in a great time right now, but we seem to be doing a lot better in in terms of actually, you know, engineering a recovery. Well, Um. (laughs) I I don't want to go down that tangent because this is supposed to be for movies, but uh, okay, yeah, I mean, yes, the stock market has an all-time high unemployment. uh, What was it like, eighty million people or something at the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, but unemployment, the unemployment rate is lower now than it was probably in 2011. We can look that up later. We can look that up later. But the recent unemployment report that said, hey, we added 900,000 jobs, the majority of those are low-wage jobs. So the jobs that we are adding are low-wage jobs. And that, I think, goes to uh, the point that part of this movie is making about the bifurcation of the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and but, we'll get but okay, that. so he Go ahead. so he wrote this movie in four days, and yeah, what was the what was the sort of spark? He says a, one of the sparks because he said in terms of his writing process, you know, yes, he can write fast, but it's because he's mulled over and worked out everything over in his head for a couple of years, and uh, that's you know that's a different way of doing it than a lot of other screenwriters, but I think it works for him. But one of the sparks for this was in 2006, he and some friends bought and were trying to revamp an old industrial building in Tribeca, which I believe is a New York neighborhood. Is that correct, Chris? Mm -hmm. Um, Correct. And then the group started to get offers on this building, and they weren't really sure about it, but someone that was... Uh, related or adjacent to this group who was like an older investment banker kind of stepped in and and gave them a hint like you know definitely take some offers on this building at this time and for him that that kind of set off a little alarm in his head like huh isn't that interesting like this guy uh, said that and then a year and a half later everything cratered in 2008 and so he was thinking back at that time, like, what did this guy know? What was he seeing that made him want to say something? And so that mm. tripped off the question that pervades this movie. And and also uh, in Chandler's family, his dad was a Merrill Lynch investment banker for a long period of time. So he had a background in that world, or at least being around those people. And so he was able to, you know, as you saw in the movie, bring a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the 
characterization to those folks that wasn't not as cookie cutter as you might see in some of the other uh, films like this. Like this definitely was not, you know, bro central boiler room type movie. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh I like to think of it as the like dramatic, serious uh counterpart to the big short. Yes. I you know, the big short I thought was and I wanted to ask you a little bit about this. You know, there hasn't really been as many recession era films as I, I try to list them all out, the ones that I could think of. It was only this, The Big Short, which specifically talked about this moment when the financial crisis took place. Um, and then 99 Homes, which is a Ramin Barani film that I recently watched uh, with Michael Shannon and Andrew Garfield. And I, I couldn't really think of any other ones. Can you, do, does anything else come to mind for you for ones that kind of talk about this moment in time? You know, I, yeah, not really. Yeah. Although, you know, it's not something like I specifically like sought to watch movies about right. this. So. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I agree. And, and also I think that these are the ones that are more directly related. There are others that touch on it. Um, we'll talk about say Nomad Lad. Uh, sorry, not Nomad Lad. That's a British film about, <laughs> hooligans in brighton but nomad land um we'll talk about that a little bit later and and probably the uh economic precarity that has persisted since then but in terms did, uh, go ahead did, did the um jennifer lopez movie from last year hustlers did that yeah did that take place during the recession possibly and also the one thing about this movie is that he uh, says in an interview that he did not want to want to say a specific date for this movie. He wanted the film to be set during any time, not just 2008, to make us feel like this could be any time. That's why it's mm. a firm that's like a historic firm, 100-some years old, not named, though. Um, yeah. yeah. So They have a little tree as their logo. Exactly. So very, very generic and very broad to say that this could be a, any investment firm you know it's in new york at any time and and also it's not even really about 2008 specifically it's just about people making a decision um that could severely affect the stock market which that can happen in many ways so do you want to do a quick rundown of the movie or do you want me to do that i've already got my 90 percent in so or do you want do you have any other questions about the development of this film i no i i thought maybe since this is like one of his i guess it's maybe his first like major it's his first motion picture feature film yeah uh yes okay. so the way that this got made is he wrote that script he sent it around with his agents zachary quinto's production company got a hold of it there was actually a, a, another version of this film in which they would have had completely different actors. Um, I believe, huh. I think he said like Javier Bardem and Ben Kingsley might have been involved. Huh? And, that would have been good. Yeah. 
or no, sorry, Javier Bardem was for um, a most violent year. The movie we'll be watching in a few episodes, but Ben Kingsley and some other names would have been involved. It's just that the scheduling didn't work out. But he was able to mm. get Zachary Quinto's brand new production company. This was his production company's first movie. This was before Quinto even had um, a Star Trek coming out. I th- yeah. Mm. Is that oh, right? Star yeah. Trek was 2009. Oh, okay. Well, he said in an interview, I guess, that... I guess in terms of the development, like, it was 2008, 2009. So it was a time where it was, like, some tight money... Um, and I guess probably Star Trek was in the mix because they would have filmed this in 2010 because it premiered at Sundance in 2011. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So anyway, Zachary Quinto got involved and they worked for, I think, over a year to try and get all the other uh, great actors that populate this movie involved and the shoot was only 17 days as opposed to a much longer shoot. And that's how they were able to get all these people because they weren't able to get them for much money. This was only filmed for about $3 million. But they got all these name actors because it's like, hey, it's a 17-day shoot, 12-hour days, six days a week, boom, you know, we're done. So Yeah. Yeah, pretty all-star cast. We got <laughs> Kevin Spacey, yeah. Paul Bettany. Jeremy Irons, Zachary Quinto, who you just mentioned, Demi Moore, Stanley Tucci, and Mary McDonald. You're From missing Star Galactica. You're missing Simon Baker and Asif yeah. Monfi. Oh, well. <laughs> it I doesn't guess. seem like you're quite missing Simon Baker and Asif Monfi. Well, and I'm not a mentalist fan, so you know. No. Oh, okay. Well, Sorry. A lot of a lot of watched women are. You should probably talk to your wife about that. And um, Asif Manvi had like two lines. I can say he's like part of the main cast of this movie. You're not going to say that meeting. Maria Dizia from Orange is the New Black as the executive assistant wasn't <laughs> critical yeah. to this. <laughs> All right, so let me let me give a, a very high level overview of this movie. Simon Baker's amazing hair. Yeah, great. Yeah. No, I mean, he's a handsome dude. What can you say? Um, I can say that. And he had his great hair. I think that yeah. I think that maybe J.C. Chandor, who also has great hair, might have cast them just because they're hair, hair mm. brothers. Unlike, what do you think about Jeremy Irons' long hair in this movie? It's a little, a little weird, right? You know what? I actually had the weird idea. I was like, this could also be during COVID times. This is COVID cut. <laughs> it's a, it's a little eccentric for his hair to be as long as it is. Yeah. Like it's not it's not long long, but it's just like long enough to like make you uncomfortable. As as someone that is. hasn't seen Jeremy Irons in anything in quite a while, like I was just happy to see him back on my screen because my first memories of Jeremy Irons were um during the uh yeah, no, it was Die Hard with a Vengeance, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, that German guy's really great. And then I learned that he's British. Um, but he's, well, he's but he's also really you know, great. You should be watching the six hours of Justice League for some Jeremy Irons action as uh, Batman's trusty butler, Alfred. 
Oh, God. Okay, well, <laughs> moving on so that we can talk about an actual good movie. Okay. Um, so, very high level. Yes. This movie takes place at an investment firm. The the day that the day that the movie starts, they're like laying off most of the company yeah. for whatever something reason. Like we're not eighty percent or something. Yeah, yeah, we're not actually privy to the reason that they're laying off everybody. Um, but one of the people they're laying off is Stanley Tucci's character, and Eric. he's a Eric. He's a risk analyst, runs the risk analyst department, their analysis department, and he's in the middle of some research that potentially he's not he's not like quite sure what's going on but he thinks there's there's high likelihood that the investments the company's been making will basically ruin it based on like current market projections but he hasn't finished the the numbers like crunching the numbers yet and he's being fired he's being shown the door and his two um underlings Zachary Quinto and uh what's the other Penn Badgley Pen, Penn Badgley sort of take over right and Zachary Quinto well, stays up yeah Zachary Quinto takes over he, Penn Badgley goes out drinking yeah I was gonna say <laughs> Penn Badgley's just there for the ride and to ask over and over how much do you think blah 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 makes but I think that yes. they are great foils for each other and we can get into that yeah yeah but I'm gonna keep this pretty high level so Keep, keep it as takes high over. as skyscraper in New York City. That's right. We'll, we'll talk about that later, too. Um, Quinto finishes the numbers, and he discovers that, yes, um, the company's basically screwed because of all the investments they've been making. or All the things they're selling are basically worthless based on like the current action and the like whatever housing market, basically, right? So... I don't know. I don't know if we should go into the like any of the details of the Great Recession, but what what this company is doing is they're taking like good mortgages and not so good mortgages, packaging them together and selling them. We but should the just value edit of, in the Margot Robbie part of uh, the Big Short here. Yeah, there it's you much go. Much more enjoyable. And, <laughs> so. Quinto discovers this. He it's like two in the morning. He calls. His boss, his, his his new boss, basically um, uh, Paul Bettany, yep. is like, you need to come here. You need to look at this, and then they just like start bringing in more and more. It's, like it's like a snow, snowball, I guess you would say, right? Like a snowball of like, oh, take it higher, take it higher, right? Yeah, because then Kevin Spacey comes. He's Paul Bettany's boss, and then a few scenes later, uh, your guy Simon Baker comes in, and he's. Kevin Spacey's boss. And then like three scenes later, Jeremy Irons comes in and he's like runs the whole company. He like, fl- he like flies in a helicopter. Uh, he's, it's almost like the arrival of like the, like the King or like, you know, like the super villain or something is, is pretty crazy. And as the movie unfolds through sort of these, um, what you call it? It's like a conference room drama, basically like going on between everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, arguing about like why they are where they are um, and then how to move forward. Um, Jeremy Irons makes the decision for the firm that what they need to do is basically like sell all of this garbage that they have, even though when they do that, it's going to do two things. It's going to ruin the firm because no one's going to trust them after selling all this garbage. And because all these other companies are doing the same thing, 
that they're doing, they're basically going to create a domino effect in the market and screw like the whole market over. But they make the decision that they should do this anyway because somebody's going to do it. So they might as well be the first ones to yes. do it. And, it. and it saves their highs even though they lose some money. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they'll they'll get to Chris, fight another it's day. just going to be spilt milk under the bridge. <laughs> yeah. I like that mixed metaphor. Uh, yeah. And I think that's that's like the basic yeah. plot outline. Of that the is a basic plot outline. Yeah. Um, There's some themes, <clears throat> you know, that we can we can discuss a little bit further. But yeah, that's the... That's the basic plot. There are themes. Great analysis. There are themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's themes, there's speeches, there's yeah. scenes. So many scenes and words of speeches <laughs> and Okay, let's let's acting. let's uh let's get definitely some acting. Let's uh let's get into the nitty gritty. Um from one just wanted to point out that Jeremy Irons' character, the CEO of the company is based off of a combination of an ex Merrill Lynch CEO and an ex Lehman Brothers CEOs. Um, so I guess given what I had said about Chandor's past and knowledge and kind of of this world, I guess he was able to take some aspects of that from um, from these people. And it's not like he's a you know cigar chomping, just complete d-bag ceo uh i think that one thing that he talks about in in this in a lot of the interviews is um and i think what's compelling is just not presenting these people as caricatures but as much more rounded than we typically get in in this type of movie um Mm -hmm. uh and then the aspect of this movie that you know a helped them stay on a low budget but then B, I think, adds to the uh, tense drama is that it's pretty much like a locked room type of movie. You know, we don't have that many different settings. They are only within their own world. And he intended to do that. He says in an interview that he wanted to absolutely isolate the viewer with this very limited group of people on a night where they have to stay amongst themselves. Uh, That gives the story paranoia. And this... uh, until this piece of information is released, you know, and, and that's where we see the snowball effect. Um, and then he gives us the time conceit, the constraint of a decision that has to be made the next day. So of course that always adds something to the movie. Like, do you, do you agree with that Chris, that that's kind of what gives this movie the energy? Like I've, this movie just has a drive to it that keeps you watching, uh, keeps us interested, yeah. keep, keeps it going. And that's, I think, really hard to do with kind of, you know, maybe the subject matter itself sometimes. Yeah, I I thought, I actually wrote that down about halfway through the movie. I, you know, I paused it to, because it's like a garbage truck driving by or something. And I really thought like that only like 20 minutes had gone by, but it was like an hour into the movie. Like it, it just like, it really grabs you. And I, I don't know if it's like down to, the claustrophobic nature of it. Cause there's plenty of plenty of movies and TV that I've seen where it's like, you're in like one setting and it can still be super boring. That's <laughs> true. Know. That's why, that's why um, I wanted to bring up like, you know, uh, or wanted to ask you at least like in your opinion, like what did you think gave it the, the energy, the, yeah, the ability to like go an hour 
without realizing it because you really don't get a breather until about an hour into it and then you get about fit because it's about a 90 minute movie and so yeah it's about 15 to 20 minutes where there's the gap between okay this is our decision and then everybody's kind of taking a breather until 6 a.m and just having these one-on-one conversations um where a lot of character gets revealed and then the audience is thrown back into the maelstrom right yeah i think that's i think that's what i would say is that you know what i was touching on earlier where you're they're constantly like revealing like the next person that needs to be involved in this right and so you feel a little bit comfortable with quinto and badgley and it's like oh no now we gotta now we gotta bring in uh paul bettany's character and now we're getting to know him a little bit but before you get comfortable there then we're bringing in the next person Mm -hmm. and the next person and so yeah, you know, you never get to like settle with somebody to the point where you could really be bored. And then I, I think that you know he's he did such a good job writing the dialogue. Yeah, that it's it's a little he's not like getting into the nitty gritty details of like the financial aspects of what's going on, but he's able to convey like how seriously screwed up things are, and also that there's like just this like a little bit of like mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not exactly sure at the beginning, like what's going to happen and how it's all going to play out. It's, I don't know, it's just, it's just really well done. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's so, yeah. it's so competent for a, a first feature. And obviously that's why these folks signed on. Um, a few things that I'd like to say or point out um, in terms of the, characters uh going back to what you're saying like you get little hints of them at first you can tell that quinto's character is for one going to be the main character two seems to be slightly different like he's much more the cerebral nerdy uh quant quantitative type guy and then Penn badgley's character who is his friend is also immediately his you know casts the foil to that where he's a little bit more of your stereotypical traitor guy Bettany looks like the more put upon, you know, been there, done that. Uh, but he's like, go he's ahead. like um, Badgley's character in 10 years. Exactly. You know, exactly. Like, yeah. And, and then Tucci's character, you know, our first scene with him is seeing him being laid off and he's like, there's something going on. And so he throws us that MacGuffin within the first five minutes. It's like, I'm, you know, I really want to finish this work. And then, what really happens is when he's escorted out of the building, he says to his protege, Quinto, he's like, here's a drive. I was working on something. See if you can figure it out. Be careful. And that's a warning sign for us. Like, oh, something's happening. And then I also think that they layer in the mystery of what happened to Tucci's character when they can't find him. Is he just getting drunk somewhere? Has he killed himself? Uh, you know, as as sometimes <laughs> these movies will do, and you know what's going what's going on with that character. So I think that's another mystery layered into that. And then there's the MacGuffin that just keeps us driving towards uh, higher and higher levels. Demi Moore. I don't think we mentioned her. I I don't even quite know what her role. Uh, she plays Sarah Robertson. I have Wikipedia. Okay, she's a chief risk management officer. So she is above Bettany 
and um and Tucci's character. So yeah. yeah. And uh, although the the movie implies that she was like in charge of coming up with the model and also of, that also that product. Yes. Yeah. And and then that she also had given warnings and anyone that's worked in a corporate environment and been ignored um I definitely uh feel for her when it's like hey this could fail spectacularly and then people are like eh, business as usual and then it does and then you're like you know you're like told you but then you get sacrificed <laughs> but then you know you end up being the sacrificial lamb like she was towards the end um yeah yeah uh I mean, I'm not saying that my case is directly like that, but it, it, I have seen it happen. I've, yeah. So yes, I, I think that it's really interesting how they give us these hints of, you know, the, the caricature stereotype at the beginning, as we roll up to the very end person, which is, uh, irons coming in on his helicopter. Uh, what's also interesting is when, you have your quantitative side, I guess, the risk analyst side, and then you start seeing with Spacey's character, who is the head of sales, saying, "Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't understand all this stuff." When they're like, "Hey, take a look at this," and he's like, "I no, I don't get this." And then Simon <laughs> yeah. Simon Baker, who is a younger uh, person than Spacey, which they point out, it's like wow he's how old is he and he's his boss and it's like yeah, he's like 20 years younger yeah and it's like yeah it's not because of the smarts and then he pretty much you know i don't think he ever says it like the other guys do because i think in terms of his ego like maybe not as much but he's you know spacey's boss but then the irons comes in and he's like you know hey i'm the ceo speak to me as you might a child or a golden retriever it was her brains <laughs> that got me here um yeah. and that's i i felt that that was a really interesting aspect of it that that he put in as well that you don't typically get cuz you you always see portrayals as you know smartest or edgiest or you know the all these type of people um but it's kind of a mixture of of you know what did iron say like be first cheat there you're gonna be first cheat or be best be best something like that that. yeah um and i want to go back to i want you to talk a little bit but i do want to go back to something that jc chandor says about um the quinto characters and and all that but i i kind of want to see uh yeah what you what you think about all that because well actually let me just finish on this so we get the sure sorry we get the caricatures at the beginning but then in that lull period that kind of slow down period what I really liked was that you get each character interfacing with a different one. So even though Penn Badgley and Quinto and kind of Spacey and Bettany were all together, you then get him when he thinks he's going to be fired or knows he's going to be fired, talking with Simon Baker in the bathroom. Um, when you get all the people that don't seem like they would interact, but because they're in the situation, I really like, I really like when, uh, when that happens that's interesting yeah i didn't really think about it yeah. that way but yeah you, you get that twist with everybody um, because it was also more could, revealing too right yeah the, th- the thing that I, I i noted was that they set up a lot of these characters as 
as caricatures. Like no one ever moves into that like cartoony space that you might think of from like Wolf of Wall Street and uh, Matthew McConaughey's character. But you kind of, you think like, okay, Kevin Spacey, I'm doing the McConaughey thing. (laughs) He's like a, he's a total D bag salesman that doesn't know what's going on. And he's just, he's worked there forever. He's just going to do what he needs to do. Right. But then he has reservations about, what they're going to do at the end of the I'm movie. sorry, who, he's like who, torn apart. who were you saying? Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Uh, well, he Sam was Rogers. really worried about his sick dog. Yeah, and his dog his dog died. and Yeah, and... Um, because I, I thought that was really funny when they introduced him. Is it seems like he knows what's going on. He's staring out the window, like, just oh. really sad. And and this is like when they're laying off these people, and then um, I forget who comes in, but is or I think Bentley comes in, and yeah. um, and then Bentley's maybe also assuming like, oh yeah, this guy's upset about the layoffs. He's like, my dog is really sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, Go ahead. that's good stuff. Go that's good stuff. I Keep think going. I think Keep all going. of yeah, no, all of them have you. Uh, well, all of the ones that you think are like bad people, yeah, they give them like just enough, you know, extra by the end of the movie where you're like, well, okay, <laughs> like, yeah, probably still overall a bad person, but he's not like, he's not again, he's not like a caricature of what we thought, except for maybe, I don't know, maybe Jeremy Irons' character is sort of the reverse. Like when he comes in, he seems like he's like very like plain spoken. And he's like, okay, you know, I, I just want to hear like what's going on. And he believes everything Zachary Quinto tells him. But then after about 10 minutes, you realize like he's willing to screw over everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, if it means that he gets to keep a little bit of money. Yeah. It, it's, it's just good writing. I don't know what else to say. Like, yeah, I'm, I was, I was amazed to see like I going into this, I didn't, yeah, I'm, we both seen this movie before, um, right. and I knew that J.C. Chandor directed it, but I had not realized that he wrote it. And the fact that he was able to direct it so well and write it, and that it's his first movie, it's just it's quite an achievement. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of the, I guess, humanization of these characters, one thing that Chandor has repeated through uh, some of the interviews I read is that. You know, uh, the people that work there are humans and have the same foibles as as all humans. Um, it's, but he also wanted to show that uh, also within the nature of that business, there is some tribalism and loyalty. That's why Spacey's character, even though at one point he says "I want out," is still staying loyal to the firm. That's why Eric Dell, even though he knows a lot of craziness is going on. Uh, that's Tucci's character comes back to sit for $167,000 an hour and not say anything, you know? Well, but both of them stay for the money. They do. Like, they do. Yeah. yeah. And Spacey's character is like really clear about that. He's like, yes. look, I don't believe anything you just told me, but, and, and I'll I think that's part of the, the I don't, maybe that's part of the cynicism of the whole thing is that that's what Quinto's character says. Like I, I kind of want to talk on, okay, so, you have um, Quinto, who is literally a rocket scientist. Um, he, they're like, hey, so what's your 
what's your deal here? This uh, Jeremy Irons is like, what's your deal here? And he's like, well, I joined two years ago. I have a, you know, um, proportion PhD from MIT, blah, blah, blah. I wrote my paper on this. And he's just going through this litany of all this non-finance related stuff. And Irons is like, so you're a rocket scientist. And he's like, yes. And he's like, and, and you're here. And he's like, well, the money's a lot better. And then Tucci um, is talking to Bettany when Bettany's trying to convince him to come in and, and help out or, you know, do whatever. Um, and Tucci has this long speech about how he used to be an engineer. And he's, and he also shows that he's able to run all these numbers in his head amazingly, right? Like when he's calculating. Yeah. Uh, so he built a bridge in Ohio and like some random place in Ohio uh, to me, Ohio is just a random place. I don't really believe it's real. Ouch. Um, Ouch. It, it exists. <laughs> okay. I've been there. You've been through there. It's a nice place. You've been through there. <laughs> or no, you actually did stay somewhere, right? Uh, recently? No. When I was a kid. Oh, okay. I thought Ohio. you guys, when you went out to Minneapolis, had stayed in, as your halfway point somewhere in Ohio. Uh, it was Indiana. Oh, same thing. Same thing. <laughs> a nowhere places um yeah it's it's funny you bring up this speech because yeah he he goes on about like okay you know i saved mm -hmm. because i built this bridge between these two towns and so they didn't have to drive way out of the way and it saves you know however many hundreds of hours a day tens of thousands of hours of month and you know hundreds of thousands of hours a year and all this other stuff and i it was the one thing in the movie that i'd thought was like a like two on the nose because he never like he never connects it in like a human way you know he just like kind of says it and leaves it there which i didn't like um okay what what would you have preferred i don't it's like it was trying to be too clever like he wants you to make this connection you know yeah. same thing with with quinto and you read about this stuff in the news how these finance jobs they pay so well it's like pulling people from well i from other I, more uh, i don't know you'd say like important or societally beneficial jobs yeah. to finance where you're just pushing these numbers around trying to you know make can rich I, people richer can i can i quote him because this is exactly a point that jc chandra was trying to make sure um the film for me was supposed to be a tragedy, not the horrible tragedy of someone dying, but a tragedy of lost potential. These are the best and brightest that we have. We don't tax our universities because they are supposed to provide society with a service, which is educated youth ready to come out of work. The abuse that I've seen over the last 14 to 15 years since I've graduated from college, the manipulation of that system, that training ground, essentially leading toward making money for money's sake as opposed to banking that is actually serving a purpose was the heart of the movie for me. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Hang, hang on. Sorry. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm a capitalist. Some wanted this movie to be more of an indictment of these people, and that's not where I come from, obviously. A misuse of tremendous potential is what I wanted the film to be about in a sort of sad way. Yeah. So yeah. you're you're not wrong. And also, um, he said that he had to cut out a lot of the kind of number game stuff that's probably different than this point. But I, I kind of want to stay on this point because um, – I, I it's I also f noticed that it's like okay it's really driving this home but it, it didn't bother me as much but it seems like it, it you thought that maybe it could have been been done in a better way yeah that's more that's more it like I I just didn't he didn't 
he didn't like tie it into like regret necessarily like oh you know I, I, because maybe like, he I, didn't it, regret it <laughs> because the money's well, pretty yeah. good and I think that could <laughs> yeah, also be I, the tragedy just, part is as like uh, I'm thinking about this now but uh, you know if they pay me enough I'm not going to really care well the rest of the movie I feel like the dialogue comes across as pretty natural okay you know like i could imagine like real people like saying these things to each other especially when you know they're like fighting with each other like to me more and uh you know like, i don't know you know, like, like you Tucci's character they find him as he's walking home at five six in the morning for from whoever knows what remember that the first place i go looking for him is like some random strip club um right. so just, who knows where wanted, he's been i just and, wanted and him to where say I just wanted him to say something like, I should have just stayed a fucking engineer. Like, think about, like, when I built this bridge, like, it saved so many people, you know, hours and hours of their life. Instead, he just kind of, like, leaves it out there in a very, like, weirdly... You know, maybe there's more subtext. Yeah. Well, that's my complaint, is, like, subtext where there didn't need to be subtext. Okay. You know, because he was so plain-spoken about everything else. Yeah. Where he's like, fuck them, I'm not coming back. Like fuck to me more you're gonna have to bleep all this out I, by the way um. <laughs> i i believe that's your point that the the characterization that they had already set up for him that wasn't quite as fitting with with that right whereas like paul bettany's speech like not 10 minutes later mm-hmm. was i don't know it was like pitch perfect that was like my favorite part of the movie yeah. the one he gives on the bridge yes yeah I kind of want to include if we can find like a YouTube clip of that. I want to put that in the show notes. Yeah, it's so good. We could do that. Yeah, I'll figure that out. Yeah. Um, yeah. The speech to Pim Badgley. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like the regular people would have, you know, like regular people are going to crucify us for this, you know, for what we're about to do and all the all the stuff we've been doing. But they they were happy enough with the with the mortgages and being able to live above their means and they would have hated it even more if we'd have been like honest all this time and not done all this shady stuff. So screw them basically. Don't worry. I'll just cut out you repeating it and put in the actual clip, which is better until you put on the stage production of this. Since you can uh, have a 30% Broadway show now filled. I don't know. Whatever your, Oh yeah. I don't know. I don't Sweet. know what you guys are doing in New York and L.A. You know, it's uh, freedom over here. <laughs> um, so, you wanted to say something yeah. about New York, though. I think in the movie. Oh yeah, uh, you know, I got a, I got a little bit of a kick out of um, the location of this movie. I guess when I watched it the first time, I hadn't yet worked in that part of town. But were you in the big New York build- in 2011? I forget. Yeah, the, I just moved there. That's the first year we were there. Um, Speaking but of I don't think I watched Bushy uh, Yeah, but I don't think we'd watch the movie until two or three years after that. But um, the location of the movie, the like skyscraper they keep showing that seems to be where they are, is two buildings away from where I used to work. Oh, okay. So I used to work on the same street as that building. Um, now they said that um, Citibank uh, not only helped them a little bit, but they gave them a floor to film on. Is yeah, that so, is that what is in the that building? Well, that was the that was going to be the other thing oh, I was going to say is that that's like 
the out the exterior um sort of aerial shots are from uh, are of this building that's sort of in um the garment district like midtown west and so it's not on not on wall street like they're not near wall street they're very close to um they're closer to like times square and where the new york times building is you can actually see the new york times the new new york times building in a lot of the shots uh and then when they switch to the interior shots from the building they're clearly somewhere else that's closer to the water yeah. <laughs> um further downtown uh and then when they show Welcome the to movie fr- making, Chris. when they show the front of the building it's got like those um you know, like waterfalls and this like huge you know like what would you call it? like a roundabout driveway looking thing in front of it mm-hmm. there's no building around there that has anything like that yeah. <laughs> in front of it Welcome. uh so it's definitely a, mis- a mismatch of uh Welcome to the magic of movies yeah but it's still like it seemed like when they're doing the aerial shots it's that building and then also when they're on the roof it looks like they're in the right place so i don't know i enjoyed that i i always not as bad as i don't think it takes me out as much but i do like picking that apart like oh where were they like when i see like a something that's definitely shot in la i'm like okay this street is here and i it doesn't bother me that much but i do like kind of trying to figure that out on a tv show or, or in a movie no, nothing's as bad as uh john wick too as far as uh the new york geography stuff so i don't know yeah i i understand that they you know they gotta they gotta work with what they you know can afford I mean, and three million dollar budget uh picked up at sundance for 4.7 made 19.5 million in the theaters but it was one of the uh, first, I think, VOD day and date type releases. And mm. uh, by the end of 2011, from the notes I have here, it was the most successful VOD release ever at that time. Well, so yeah. actually kind of setting some standards for things that we're seeing today. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, go- I do have a few more odds and ends if... Um... I'm gonna start wrapping things up uh i we can we can make this an easter present just for you um the only thing that i have left i wanted to talk about its nomination for an oscar but i'd like to hear from you chris go ahead whether i would nominate for an oscar no no no, my, no. My odds I, I wanted are. to i wanted your odds and ends oh or no. is the odds and ends about the movie or is it you just talking about, your about life the movie no one wants to hear okay great about the movie okay I, there were a few things that this reminded me of specifically okay. um one that we watched recently actually um you know there's there's a few yeah, scenes like king where kong versus around. godzilla right king kong versus godzilla there's there's a few scenes where they're driving and talking on the phone and it had a very lock feel to I it i wanted to bring yeah, up lock yes yeah. yeah so there's a little bit of that in there i it being sort of a what we described earlier is like a it's like a bottle episode you know everything takes place in like yeah. you know one building For people that haven't listened to it go and watch the movie block and then listen to our previous pod on that another constrained film that we both really enjoyed yeah and similar similar shots in that movie where there's lots of weird like sort of close-up angles of people that are pretty arresting like if you are paying attention to the cinematography are you talking about Locke or talking about this movie this both movies so a note for you there 
because um, I actually did my research this time. <laughs> um, uh, Chandor says that that was an editorial decision. They shot everything with wide shots, but as they were editing it, they started to think more about close-ups and um, trying to to do exactly what you said. Um, yeah, because yeah, there's lots of there's lots of shots where I remember there's like one in particular uh that, that really caught my eye where we're basically looking at like kevin spacey's cheek and like part of his like eye yeah. and then we're also looking at like another character off to the right of the screen and it's like most movies would never do a shot that's like that close and i guess maybe they didn't and they like cropped it down which is kind of crazy to think about but really really interesting cinematography yeah i i guess they did that in the um in the edit where they were able to you know, prop it in closer. Uh, he says that as they were doing that, you know, the film just seemed to move faster, that it seemed that you were more inside the characters' heads than what they got with the wide shots. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and as I was saying, it's a little bit, you know, we're, we're not moving between a lot of different locations. There are a few, but we're not moving between a lot of different locations. Yeah. Reminded me a little bit of uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yep. Uh, and that this could this could easily be um, adapted to be a play. I, I yeah, I thought the same thing, um, and it definitely could be. Um, though I'm always amazed when you could do something like this, but then doing it in a cinematic manner like they did. Like I thought that having the variety of locations, even if they didn't quite match up to um, actual New York uh, geography, I, that mm-hmm. probably helped you help take you out of that single room and helps you you know you're in like these various desks various offices and various homes stoops what have you um to give it that expanse but i I definitely think it it could could have been a play um and uh had that mammoth quality in terms of the dialogue um and as we mentioned in the sean connery movies uh he was in a few sydney lament movies people also compared this to 12 Angry Men, which is like a Sydney, uh, or not like a, but is a Sydney Lumet movie and, and some of his other films. Um, so it, prob- it probably also, the comparison there, driven a little bit by Kevin Spacey playing like a boss. I was going to ask you about <clears throat> those movies. I was going to ask you how you feel about that because Spacey in his prime was pretty good at playing these type of characters. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Um, I don't know if you ever saw Swimming with Sharks. Um, and then a more sing chewing, not so great part in horrible bosses, which was a decently funny movie, but yeah, Spacey was pretty good at playing this type of character, yeah. except for this one yeah. was a little bit more sympathetic than. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's probably why I thought his character being sympathetic was actually an interesting twist because he's usually not when he's playing this yeah. kind of character. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, the very obviously not like yes, it it does feel a little bit like Glengarry Glenn Ross, but the the dialogue isn't as affected as a as a mammoth yeah. play or movie. Yeah, and um, and I think the, that's what sells yeah, Glengarry Glenn Ross is that when you actually have really good actors inhabiting that, you know, it doesn't feel as affected as sometimes what you see with like a filmed play. Um, where you're like, this really feels like a, a theatrical thing, 
Um, you know, I think mm-hmm. that Pacino, uh, especially does a good job of just Pacinoing it and making it feel human. Yeah. Sorry. That's yeah. not even really a good verb, but whatever. <laughs> um, it's in the dictionary now. It is. Pacinoing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for the, for the film score fans out there, I don't think there was much of a score to this one. There were, uh, there were scenes Reading after scenes where I don't think there was, I was gonna ask you, any music at all. Yeah. Like you're sitting uh-huh. in that conference room with Jeremy Irons and I actually felt like I was hearing the room tone, you know? Yeah. And that was one of my favorite scenes of the movie because for a few reasons, one, because, you know, we're, we're introduced to Jeremy Irons character and I, I, you know, enjoyed his performance and the way they wrote that character. But also because as he's talking there, the camera moves subtly to different characters and you get, you see their reactions to what is being said by different people. And it's not always the, what I noticed this time watching it, it's not always the character that the camera's focusing on. That's like having the most interesting reaction to what's being said. Sometimes it's like a person sitting like two people away. Mm -hmm. That's a character that, you know, you are familiar with from earlier in the movie. And it's just, it felt like a real meeting for that reason. Like not everybody's not just like staring blankly ahead you know, they're all like, what? I, I also felt <laughs> or, that know, that kind was... of worried or pensive or yeah. Um, I just wanted to say that I thought that that was also the reward of rewatching this is that I, I remember the overall aspects of it, but being able to really focus in on a lot of different things. Uh, I think this is one of those movies. I don't typically rewatch movies unless I really like it. And, and as you said, like you're able to, ignore the story which when you first watch something you're always just trying to okay what's going on what's going on and and really Mm -hmm. pay attention to some of this background stuff right right yeah because there if if you ever watch that scene again there's like certain characters that are clearly saying to like their like internal dialogue is got to be like jeremy irons is full of crap (laughs) right now and no, no one ever says that you know, it's just like in their eyes and like the little smirk that they're making. Chris, have it's... you ever been in a meeting like that? Yeah, <laughs> just a, just a few. Uh, yeah, I, I have to say that I I might have been as well. Yeah, I've also the, been kicked uh... out of meetings before, where <laughs> I have been the board person who was uh, picking at something on his cup for five minutes and not realizing that everybody was staring at him, and they're like, oh. "You can go back to your desk." yeah we don't need you here anymore yeah uh well i think i think that's about it for me um i really i enjoyed this movie and it's like i said it went really fast and i yeah looking forward to the next one. we're coming up on an hour so i just want to throw in a few last things my jordan's odds and ends um (laughs) one do you think that it ended in the right place Oh, with the no. how did you feel? Not about necessarily. That? <laughs> yeah, well, it, just, it never seems right to me when the movie like ends with you know someone other than the main character. You know, like I kind of like yeah. I know it's an ensemble movie, yeah. but you know we're, we were kind of like seeing I, most but... of the movie through the eyes of Zachary Quinto, and then yeah. the end on like Spacey's personal tragedy was just a little. But you would have just seen Quinto uh, going back into like the Enterprise or something, 
you know, I don't. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah, I think Spacey's character, given the sympathetic nature, I think that it was probably the best one. I'm, I'm sure that when he was writing the script, he's like, "Who, who should be the last? You know, you, you're not going to end on Irons. Um, Tucci's done. Betney maybe. Yeah. Um, Quinto will go back to." you know his vulcan or whatever so i think you only really had spacey um one thing that chandor does say about this is um he wasn't even trying to humanize him by showing him burying the dog in his ex-wife's yard it was um to show that uh like his denial uh of the responsibility of his actions um does that make any sense to you no yeah well he was trying to explain it to me so from what it sounds like, um, it's that a real human, instead of thinking about the consequences of the things they're doing, like the actions of, say, you know, millions of people losing their jobs and, and worth being destroyed and the economy teetering and, and what have you, Hmm. might choose to cover that up by doing something else by ignoring it through another action and so the focus on the dog the focus on this and that is to maybe not get to the point that tucci's character had gone to with the bridge thing or at least to cover that up for a little bit not come to the realization of the depths um and he says this in an interview afterwards and so i think that uh, this is brought up because a person put the question to him like you know um did you write it on this way yeah pretty much yeah like i i that's not how it read to me i yeah i thought it was like he's just so shell-shocked by everything that happened over the last 24 hours that he's like kind of broken yeah. right now well that's why i wanted to bring like it up because i i wanted to see if if you got what he was saying because i i felt the same way um i i did not take away from the end what chandor saying his intent was which you know, of course, when you're writing something, you always want your intent to come across. Um, I, I can definitely see that perspective now that he's said it, but in the moment, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a that's a little too. I mean, I, it's fine that yeah. people can interpret it different ways, but yeah. yeah, I didn't, I did not read it that way. Okay, so the last I, on either viewing, yeah, the last um, thing I wanted to bring up is that this was nominated for original screenplay. Um, and, uh, I don't know, like, do you think that this could have been a contender for a best picture? Yeah, I don't see why not. Let me give you who are the people or the, the movies that are nominated for best picture at the 84th Academy Awards that year. (laughs) Tell me if you've seen any of these since then or at all. (laughs) Um, War Horse. The Tree of Life. Nope. You've probably seen this one. Moneyball. Yep. Yeah. Do you like Moneyball? I like Moneyball. It's good. Yeah, Moneyball's great. Midnight. Kind of on. Go ahead. Moneyball is, is kind of similar to this movie. I, I wanted could, to. Yeah, I was going to say that that would be like an adjacent recession era film. That might be the reason they didn't nominate this movie. Maybe. It's like Moneyball like took that spot. Took the recession spot? Well, as like the um ensemble yeah. uh sort of office drama kind of movie you know yeah i i so, kind of okay. think brad pitt should have won for 
actor for that year. Anyway, uh, Midnight in Paris. Never saw it. Hugo. Yeah, saw that. Saw Scorsese. Uh, the Help. Nope. Extremely loud and incredibly close. I don't think I've ever even heard of that movie. <laughs> that was a New York. <laughs> Did not watch the. That was a New York movie. Okay. Uh, the Descendants. I'm aware of it, but I haven't seen it. And then the one that went for Best Picture, The Artist. You know, I wanted to see that movie, but I've never watched it. So I liked I've only it at seen, the what, time. Two out of those movies. I liked it at the time. I don't know if I would rewatch it now. I mean, no, mm. it's fun. It was fun. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But it, um, you know, I think that was just one of those where it's like it's so inventive or different than what we're you know because it was a silent film. Um, mm. So anyway, right. this was nominated for original screenplay, so at least it got some accolades in that direction. Uh, in terms of original screenplay, it was nominated along with A Separation, which was an Oscar for Hardy uh, film. Um, that film won for Best Foreign Language Film, which mm. I don't quite know how that works if it's written in a foreign language, but then is but I guess it can be in a foreign language. I'm not sure how that works. Um, Bridesmaid was also nominated for original screenplay, <laughs> The Artists, huh. and Midnight in Paris. And Midnight in Paris won. Oh. Yeah. I haven't seen most of these other movies, so I can't really. Okay. I I mean I can't really say. I, like... I enjoy I enjoyed at the time Midnight in Paris. Well, I enjoyed all of those movies: Midnight in Paris, The Artist, Bridesmaid, and this movie. Um, but I don't. In terms of, yeah, I guess it was a pretty original overall, other than Midnight in Paris, which is just. A, a better Woody Allen film at that time than what he had been doing. But I guess yeah. the artist bridesmaids and marching call that would have been, those are all very original, unique choices versus what you sometimes see. Yeah. Um, that's, and we can talk about this more on our Oscar yes. PCAST when, when it comes, but I, one of the complaints that I thought was put pretty well by Bill Simmons on one of his podcasts a few years ago, one of his complaints about the, the Oscars, you know that looking back at who's won yeah. the Oscars, you don't get a sense of like what necessarily what is like what he wants to see out of the Oscars is who you know whatever movie wins is a movie that you're going to be talking about ten years from now, twenty years from now. People are going to look back at that year and be I like, hate, "That was the movie." I hate that I'm agreeing with Bill Simmons, but that is exactly one of the points I want to bring up on our forthcoming Oscar podcast. I was going to go through the last ten years and ask you if you even remember the these movies, <laughs> right? Or you know, or if you would have even thought to watch them unless they'd been exactly the winner, right? Yeah. So so we'll yeah, save that. I, we'll save that for the the Oscar PCAS, which is going to be coming up in a few weeks. SAG Awards are tonight. Oh God! And um, and then no SAG here. I'm only 37. Inappropriate jokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> BAFTAs are April 11th, and then the Oscars are April 25th. So we're going to have that Oscar PCAS out for the people um, prior. We gotta get to work. I have so many more movies to watch. You do. You need to stop watching the five-hour extended Snyder Cut. It's just the Snyder Cut yes. until he does a new theatrical release. <laughs> no more. No more. All right. 
yeah. go watch well, should we say folks go should we say goodbye and switch to the uh switch to the after dark are we doing after dark yeah let's do a quick after okay. dark um so we're gonna have this one we have the margin call and then i believe that we're gonna do our oscars um and then we will do all is lost and a most violent year is that correct uh yes i don't think you can fit in all is lost plus the other movies you need to watch for the oscars right that is correct yes because i need to watch six movies <laughs> exactly so <laughs> so folks um after this podcast the next one will be the oscars one where we'll be bsing a lot more than usual and then you will want to watch all is lost for the second movie in our jc chandor deep dive so thank you and have a great week. Bye now. It's it's 2021. There's nothing else to do.